from kind of the 70s onwards, we start to get this evidence of fine-tuning in physics. And on our most straightforward way of understanding evidence, that looks like pretty strong evidence for some kind of goal-directedness towards life. Every generation absorbs a worldview they can't see beyond. You get laughed at if you sort of say something a bit different. I think, to be honest, that's what's happening with fine-tuning now, that the evidence has changed. The fine-tuning is not how we expected science to turn out, but we should be brave and follow the evidence where it leads. Hello, Adrian here, and welcome back to Waking Cosmos, a philosophy podcast and video series exploring the nature of consciousness, reality, and ethics. My guest today is the philosopher Philip Goff, who is a professor of philosophy at Durham University. Philip is best known for his defence of panpsychism, a view in which consciousness is a fundamental feature of all reality. More recently, Philip has been focused on cosmic fine-tuning, which is the surprising discovery of the last century that constants shaping the development of the universe appear strangely fine-tuned to allow for life's existence. Philip argues that cosmic fine-tuning is evidence not for a multiverse or for an all-powerful cosmic creator, but for the existence of a mysterious cosmic purpose that is driven by the creation of conscious value. Subjects explored in today's conversation include consciousness and how standard materialism has struggled to explain it, a philosophical defence that consciousness is the intrinsic nature of reality, reasons to be sceptical about the existence of the multiverse, and the possibility of a cosmic mind. Philip also responds to my concern that through the suffering caused by Darwinian evolution, the universe may have created more conscious disvalue than value. Just before we begin, please remember that you can support the continued existence of Waking Cosmos by subscribing to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos, where you can get early access to every podcast and video I create. And to those of you who are already subscribed, thank you. You are the reason that Waking Cosmos exists. Finally, you can also help the podcast by giving it a nice rating or review on podcast services like Apple or Spotify. Or if you're listening on YouTube, please consider liking, subscribing, and commenting your thoughts on the episode. Okay, without further delay, here is my conversation with Philip Goff. Hi, Philip. How are you, my friend? I'm very well, Adrian. Really good to talk to you again. It's been a while. It has. Yeah, good to have you back on. So today we're going to be talking about consciousness and your view that consciousness is fundamental to reality. And then later on, we're going to get into the subject of your latest book, which explores the possibility that the universe has a form of purpose that explains, among other things, why the universe is apparently fine-tuned for life. I've really been looking forward to getting you back on the podcast, Philip. I really enjoyed our previous conversation a couple of years ago now. And yeah, I think we're going to cover quite a lot of ground today. But since consciousness is going to be central to our conversation, perhaps you could start us off in traditional fashion by defining what you mean by the word consciousness and also why it's proven to be such a hard problem to fit consciousness into our standard materialist view of reality. That's a good place to start. 
I think I use the word consciousness in a in a pretty standard way as it's used in philosophy and science. Your consciousness is simply what it's like to be you. So right now you're having an auditory experience of my voice speaking to you, visual experience of the room around you. You're probably having some tactile sensations, maybe some itches, maybe you feel a bit tired or hungry. This is all part of what it's like to be you right now. And that's all we mean by consciousness. Sometimes people say it's a mystery what consciousness is. I don't like that way of putting it. I think nothing is more familiar and obvious than our own feelings and experiences. The challenge is not what consciousness is, but how it fits into our overall theory of reality. Despite great progress in our scientific understanding of the brain, we still don't have even the beginnings of an explanation of how electrochemical signaling could give rise to an inner world of colours and sounds and smells and tastes. We don't have any kind of story as to how that might go. So it's all a big mystery, really. How does consciousness that we know about from the inside fit in with the rest of the physical world that we know from the outside through using our senses and from doing science. Okay, so let's get into the subject of panpsychism, in which consciousness is a fundamental feature of reality. Philip, I know that you've taken panpsychism into some pretty unique places, into cosmology and, and fine-tuning, and we'll definitely be getting into all of that later. But before we go down that rabbit hole, could you just give a general defense of panpsychism and why you see it as a plausible alternative to materialism? So as you say, panpsychism is the view that consciousness goes all the way down to the fundamental building blocks of reality. Maybe electrons and quarks have incredibly simple forms of experience and the very complex experience of the human or animal brain is somehow built up from more rudimentary forms of experience at the fundamental level of reality. I often talk about it, as I just have done, as believing in conscious particles, but it's a job for physics, ultimately, to tell us what the ultimate building blocks of reality are. And many physicists are more inclined to think that actually reality is made up of universe-wide fields rather than little billiard ball particles and that particles are just local excitations in those fields. So if you combine that with panpsychism, we get the view that the fundamental forms of consciousness are these universe-wide fields. And this seems to lead to a view we might call cosmopsychism, that the, the universe itself as the fundamental bearer of those fields is the basic conscious mind. So that's the view. Why take it seriously? What I'm often keen to emphasize is that when we're dealing with consciousness, this is not just a scientific problem. I, I've stopped, in fact, using this term, the hard problem of consciousness, which has been a very useful term in getting consciousness on the map. But I find it so often makes people think this is just another scientific problem. How do brains make consciousness? We just need to do more experiments and we'll crack it. And of course, experiments and the science of consciousness is absolutely crucial for making progress with consciousness. But we also have a philosophical challenge here. 
what has traditionally been known as the mind-body problem, the challenge of how consciousness and the physical world fit together. So it could be that the physical world is the fundamental thing and consciousness arises from physical processes in the brain. That's what the physicalist or the materialist thinks. Or it could be, as the panpsychist thinks, the other way around. Maybe it's consciousness that's fundamental and physical reality arises from underlying facts about mind or consciousness. Or it could be a third option, the dualist option, that both consciousness and the physical world are equally fundamental but radically distinct. So there are all these options, all these philosophical options, and crucially, all of these options are empirically equivalent, which means you, you couldn't distinguish between them with an experiment. For any scientific data, each of these theories, physicalism, panpsychism, dualism, will just interpret that data in their own terms. So in that sense, this isn't a scientific question. It's not one we can answer with an experiment. We just have to evaluate these different options on their own terms in terms of how well they meet their explanatory obligations and try and work out which is more plausible. And in my view, when you do this, there's kind of a clear winner, because if you think about, so what's, what are the explanatory ambitions of physicalism? The explanatory am ambitions of physicalism are to try and account for the emergence of consciousness from underlying physical facts like neurological processes in the brain. That explanatory project has gone precisely nowhere, <laughs> despite decades of time and serious effort into trying to make sense of that, how consciousness could emerge from stuff in the brain. And also, I think there are pretty good philosophical arguments that show that that's, it's actually not really a coherent project. On the other hand, what are the explanatory ambitions of panpsychism? Well, it's the other way around, right? They want to start with consciousness and try and make intelligible the emergence of physical reality from underlying facts about consciousness. In terms of that project, in stark contrast to the abject failure of physicalism, I think we've already worked out how to do that. I think the mysteries are solved. I think we know how you could account for the emergence of physical reality in terms of underlying facts about consciousness. So essentially, I see, you know, we've got these two expansionary projects, Physicalism, which has been a total failure, never gone anywhere. Good reasons to think it's not even coherent. Panpsychism, the mysteries are solved. We've already completed the expansion project. So to my mind, it's sort of a no brainer that panpsychism looks to be the more plausible option. And I think the reason it's not taken more seriously is just it feels a bit weird. It's not what we've got used to. Kind of cultural reasons, really, I think. Yeah. I think in particular, it might also be useful if you could give an account of the more uh, specific Russell Eddington inspired panpsychism that has made quite a, a comeback in recent years. And I think a lot of the recent work on panpsychism, uh, including your own, is is built on. Absolutely. So this is the influence of the very important work Bertrand Russell was doing in the 1920s. And scientist Arthur Eddington was influenced by this and developed it still further. So I think what Russell was really wrestling with in the 1920s is the fact that physics is purely mathematical. Our most basic science is just a load of equations. And it's something we kind of take for granted, but it's it was quite a radical innovation, actually, of um, Galileo in, in the 17th century. 
as I talk about in my book, Galileo's Error, to say, right, from now on, our, our basic science is going to be totally mathematical. And this is, of course, very useful if you're a practicing scientist. You can get very precise predictions and so on. But Russell's thinking, what does it mean as a philosopher interested in the ultimate nature of reality that our most basic science is just a load of equations? And what Russell realized, it, it means that actually physics isn't really telling us that much about what fundamental reality is. It's merely describing its mathematical structures. As far as physics is concerned, fundamental reality could turn out to be anything. As long as it has the right mathematical structure, you're going to be able to get physics out of that. So that's all, that's all as it were, that physics demands of reality. It says, you know, reality could be anything. Just make sure it has the right mathematical structure. So the Bertrand Russell-inspired panpsychist exploits this to make sense of their view. So the idea is at the fundamental level of reality, we just have these networks of very simple conscious entities or these simple conscious fields interacting in simple, predictable ways. Through their interactions, they realize certain patterns, certain mathematical structures. And then the thought is those mathematical structures just are what we call physics. And so we get physics out of these underlying facts about consciousness. So we can't get consciousness out of physics, but we can get physics out of consciousness. I mean, I always like to give the great line from Stephen Hawking in A Brief History of Time, where he says, even final physics will be just a bunch of equations. It won't tell us what breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe. So for the panpsychist, it's consciousness that breathes fire into the equations. Okay, so just to summarize, this type of panpsychism starts out with the observation that physical science tells us, of course, a great deal about the outwardly facing causal structure of the world. But in fact, it doesn't tell us anything at all about what reality actually is in itself, what the equations of physics are actually pointing to and, and describing. And so the argument is that materialism is actually completely silent about the intrinsic nature of reality. It just leaves this huge gap. Um, but then on the other hand, we have this mysterious phenomenon of consciousness, which, as it happens, does have this unique quality of being an intrinsic nature, which is to say that we don't infer the existence of consciousness. We're just directly acquainted with the reality of consciousness from the inside. And conspicuously, not only is consciousness an intrinsic nature in this respect, uh, but it also seems to be the only one that we can imagine. And so the argument is that our understanding of reality actually demands this interior quality, something very much like consciousness, in order to be complete. And yeah, I think elsewhere I've heard you summarize this view as matter is what consciousness does. Is that right? That was a wonderful explanation. I think you explained it better than I did, actually. Um, as you maybe hinted at there, I mean, it could be that actually fundamental matter has some completely unknown intrinsic nature that we've never dreamt of, we can never have any connection to. That's actually a possibility I take very seriously. So in contrast to my PhD supervisor, Galen Strawson, so Galen, in a quite well-known paper of his, he, he just has this very strong intuition that you couldn't get consciousness from non-consciousness. 
you need consciousness there at the base to start off with, or you're never going to get it out. You know, you don't put consciousness in, you're not going to get it out. I don't actually share that intuition. I don't think you could get consciousness out of the kind of stuff physics talks about, you know, purely quantitative mathematical properties. I don't think you can get the experience of red out of just quantitative equations and things. But I don't know, there could be some totally unknown type of intrinsic nature down there that somehow is adequately suited to produce consciousness. The technical term for this is proto-phenomenal or proto-experiential. So I take that seriously, but in a way that seems to me to be introducing mystery unnecessarily. Why postulate two kinds of intrinsic property when you only need one? You know, the only kind of intrinsic property we know about is consciousness. And I think we can explain everything else we need to explain. We can ground the facts of physics just with the, by postulating properties of exactly the same kind, namely experiential. Yeah, so I think the most parsimonious option and therefore the most probable option is panpsychism. If I had to put a number on it, I'd say I'm sort of 60% confident in panpsychism. You know, so more probable than not, because I think it's the most parsimonious option. But I, I do give us a, a, a strong amount of credence also to this, what's sometimes called pan-protopsychism, that there's some unknown proto-experiential nature at the base of reality. I think that's a, a strong possibility too. Right. Okay, so you and other defenders of panpsychism have suggested that fundamental particles have this basic property of consciousness. Obviously, you would say that it's a much simpler, much more basic consciousness than that which we experience. But one criticism of this view is that the type of consciousness which panpsychism might attribute to particles is so far from what we know as consciousness that it actually doesn't make sense to, to call it consciousness at all. So one example that I, I, I wanted to raise for you is photons. So photons, of course, are the particles that make up light. And so naturally, they're always traveling at the speed of light. But we know from relativity that if you could actually travel at the speed of light, you couldn't experience time. And so technically, it seems that for photons, time doesn't exist. So yeah, do, Philip, do you think that this is a problem at all for particle consciousness? That's a great question. There's a wonderful paper, I think one of the best recent papers on panpsychism by Barry Dainton from the University of Liverpool called The Silence of Physics, I think it's called. And it talks about a number of things, but this is this is one issue he thinks about. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Einstein used to dream about what it would be like to ride on a beam of light. I suppose this question is, you know, what is it like to be a beam of light? Uh, Susan Schneider also has raised similar challenges to panpsychism from a slightly different perspective, thinking about certain popular views in theoretical physics where space and time emerges. So what is at the fundamental level is not spatial or temporal. And then if you're a panpsychist, then you're going to think that the consciousness stuff at the fundamental level doesn't have a kind of temporally flowing consciousness. Yeah, these are fascinating puzzles. I suppose I don't have too much difficulty with the idea of consciousness that's not temporal. I mean, we do have descriptions of mystical experiences throughout history that claim to be a kind of unconditioned, formless consciousness that's not spatial or temporal. And 
whether or not you think those experiences correspond to fundamental reality or not, they don't seem to be contradictory or incoherent. So yeah, it's not clear to me there's something incoherent about the idea of a conscious experience that's not temporal. But I mean, there, there is a more general worry here that, of course, if photons or even electrons have consciousness, it's going to be radically different to human consciousness. But then the consciousness we already know about comes in all shapes and sizes. Human consciousness is incredibly complex. Sheep consciousness is much simpler. Consciousness of a snail is much simpler still. Already almost unimaginably simple. And we can keep on going to simpler and simpler forms of life, find simpler and simpler forms of consciousness. There doesn't seem to be any conceptual limit here to how simple subjective experience could be or to the variety of forms it can exist in. So I think there's something kind of radically Copernican about panpsychism that we're not we're not basing our understanding of consciousness on human consciousness this weird radically developed form if you're a panpsychist it's a very unusual form of consciousness cosmically speaking but we're thinking of consciousness as this much more general flexible thing that could exist in all kinds of wild and weird and wonderful varieties so Famously, you have combined panpsychism with a position known as priority monism. And out of this, you've developed another view, which you call cosmopsychism, in which the entire universe makes up a single conscious mind. Could you first explain what priority monism is and then how, in combination with panpsychism, you get to this view of cosmopsychism? So panpsychism is the view that Whatever the fundamental building blocks of reality are, they have some kind of experience. But that leaves open what the fundamental building blocks are. They might be fundamental particles, they might be fields, or we have this very interesting view, influentially defended in recent times by the philosopher Jonathan Schaffer. He defends the philosophical and scientific plausibility that the universe itself is the one fundamental entity. So whereas on your classical atomist view, the fundamental things are particles and everything else exists and is the way it is because of facts about particles and how they're arranged, the priority monus turns that upside down. The one fundamental entity is the universe considered as a whole and everything else that exists exists and is the way it is because of facts about the universe as a whole. So Jonathan Schaffer thinks this, for example, helps us make sense of quantum entanglement. That fits much better with this kind of holist picture of reality. Maybe it fits better with the idea that reality is made of fields rather than particles, which many physicists think fits better with uh, quantum field theory. So there's a lot going, I think, for this holist view. And if you combine it with panpsychism, then you get cosmopsychism. So the fundamental thing is the whole universe and its consciousness and everything else exists and is the way it is because the conscious universe exists and has the kind of consciousness it does. So I take cosmopsychism to be a, a form of panpsychism. That's fascinating. So I guess priority monism is basically the view that on a deep ontological level, only one thing truly exists, and that would be the entire 
cosmic ensemble or whatever everything is. And yeah, we talked about this last time you were on, and I think it makes a lot of sense, actually. You know, it does seem to be really just an assumption that the very smallest things should be the most fundamental. And yeah, I think elsewhere, this way of thinking has been referred to as smallism. And yeah, perhaps it's the other way around. Uh, so you've combined this priority monism view with panpsychism. And so then consciousness becomes an essential part of this unity. So essentially, you're saying that there's a big cosmic mind. I remember previously we talked about this and you suspected that the actual experiences of this large mind were probably kind of a random mess, as opposed to something more unified and, and purposive. But more recently, you've suggested that this mind could be more coherent and ordered after all. So what's changed your view about this? And also, how is this cosmic mind different to what I think many people would be happy to call God? Yeah, I think I have changed my mind since we last spoke. I suppose I've gone back and forth about cosmological fine tuning. And that, that's really what's um, one big, big motivation for, for the new book so this surprising discovery of recent decades that for life to be possible, certain numbers in physics had to fall in a in a quite narrow range. So I think the, the example that's perhaps most baffled physicists is that re which revolves around dark energy, the force which powers the expansion of the universe. So once you do the calculations, it becomes clear that if the force of dark energy was a little bit stronger, everything would have shot apart so quickly that no two particles would have ever met. We wouldn't have had any stars, planets, any kind of structural complexity, and therefore no life. If this force had been a little bit weaker, it would not have counteracted gravity. And so everything would have collapsed back on itself a split second after the Big Bang. Again, we would have had no structural complexity, no life. So for life to be even possible, the strength of this force had to be like Goldilocks porridge, not too strong, not too weak, just right. It's always seemed to me, to be honest, incredibly improbable that we'd just win the cosmic lottery, that these numbers would be just right for life, just by sheer chance. This needs some kind of explanation. And the case we've just discovered is just one case. There are many, many. But for a long time, and I think, Adrian, when we last spoke, I was going for the multiverse hypothesis, this idea that maybe there are just many, many universes. So if you've got enough universes with enough variety in their numbers, at least one of them is going to have the right numbers for life. Just as, you know, if enough people do the lottery, someone's going to get the right numbers. Similarly, if there are enough universes, one of them is going to have the right numbers for life. But I guess I've just been convinced that there is just deep, deep problems with this explanation. I, I've kind of been dragged kicking and screaming, you know. You know, it's not like I wanted to believe in this kind of strange forms of cosmopsychism that I've been led to in this new book. In fact, to be honest, I feel a bit silly defending this stuff because, you know, it doesn't fit well with what my peers take seriously and so on. And so I thought for a long time the multiverse was the, the more plausible option. But... I've eventually reluctantly concluded that that's it's just not a it's not a feasible explanation. It's just not a coherent explanation. And so I've I've ended up with looking to more radical alternatives. Right. So I think we're now ready to get deeper into your more recent work on cosmic purpose. So 
since developing the view of cosmopsychism, you've taken this further step towards the idea that the universe has what philosophers call teleology, which essentially means that the universe has a kind of purpose, that it's striving towards something. And so this is the subject of your latest book, titled Why the Purpose of the Universe. I found it fascinating. I've really been looking forward to talking about it with you. So yeah, let's get into it. Philip, why might the universe have some kind of purpose and what does it have to do with life and consciousness? Thank you. Thanks for the kind words. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Yeah, I guess so many people think you have to fit into this dichotomy of either you believe in the god of traditional Western religion or you're a Richard Dawkins-style secular atheist. You know, it's like, whose side are you on, Richard Dawkins or the Pope? I was raised Catholic, actually, but I, I decided I didn't believe in God when I was 14, refused to get confirmed, upset my grandmother. And, you know, for a long time, I was happily in team secular atheist. But I've gradually began to think that actually both of these worldviews are inadequate. Both of them have things they can't explain about reality. In terms of the traditional God hypothesis, my worry is the, the very familiar one of reconciling a loving or powerful God with the terrible, gratuitous suffering we find in the world. As wonderful as it is, there's also quite horrific and seemingly unnecessary suffering. But also that in terms of the traditional atheist picture of just living in a meaningless, purposeless universe, I think there are things this view can't explain either. One is the cosmological fine-tuning, which we've already discussed, the fact that physics appears to be fine-tuned for life. And ultimately, I think, you know, we face a choice here. Either it's just a ludicrously improbable, more than astronomically improbable fluke that the numbers in our physics are right for life, or the numbers in our physics are as they are because they are the right numbers for life. In other words, that there is some kind of purpose or goal-directedness at the fundamental level of reality. I want us to come back to your reasons for dismissing the multiverse and other explanations and then go deeper into all of this. But before we go much further, perhaps it would be a good idea to first do a bit of a, um, an exorcism of teleology. Because, yeah, teleological views have got quite a negative reputation in, in modern science and philosophy. Historically, the idea that nature has a purpose is typically, I think, associated with naive or pre-scientific views. And so the observation is that as science has advanced, the need for goals or teleological explanations for life or for the world have gradually become obsolete and also incompatible with modern scientific theories like evolution. So, Philip, how do you see the ideas of purpose and teleology becoming once again, plausible to serious academic thinkers? I think the the kind of argument you just described there is incredibly popular, but I think we need to be careful because when you think about it, it's almost suggesting there is a kind of destiny to the direction of science, like there's this inevitable, divinely ordained path to science that it's going to lead to less and less teleology and less and less purpose and so on. But from my perspective, surely we should just 
look at the evidence, <laughs> you know, what the evidence suggests at any given moment. Now, I do think for over 100 years after Darwin, that did seem to be what science was suggesting before Darwin, God or anything godish was seeming to look more and more redundant in physics. You know, in the early days, Newton had a, had a role for God in his physics, giving the planets a little nudge every now and again to keep them in their orbits. Famously, the French physicist Laplace worked out how to dispense with God from Newton's physics. There's a great anecdote where um, Napoleon allegedly read Laplace's book and said, where's God in this theory? And Laplace said, sire, I have no need of that hypothesis. So, you know, this was looking more and more redundant from physics. And then, but it still looked pretty evident that there was purpose in biology. Things seem to have complex functions. But then we get Darwin. And I suppose that seemed to be the, you know, the final nail in the coffin of anything like cosmic purpose. And then we get, you know, Nietzsche saying God is dead. The ideas of Freud that God is a kind of cosmic substitute for daddy or... Uh, Marx saying religion is the opium of the masses and, th and this idea that, you know, science has ruled out all that kind of nonsense. But I think, you know, we just have to look where the evidence leads. And, and I think from kind of the 70s onwards, I think the evidence does change. We start to get this evidence of fine tuning in physics. And on our most straightforward way of understanding evidence, that looks like pretty strong evidence for some kind of goal directedness towards life. And to be honest, I think we're kind of a bit in denial about it at the moment as a society, because it doesn't fit with the picture of science we've got used to. I think it's a little bit like in the uh, 16th century when we first started getting evidence that we're not in the centre of the universe and people struggle to accept that. And nowadays we, we scoff at them and think, oh, those religious idiots, why didn't they just follow the evidence? But I think every generation absorbs a worldview they can't see beyond. You get laughed at if you sort of say something a bit different. And I, I think, to be honest, that's what's happening with fine tuning now, that the evidence has changed. The fine tuning is not how we expected science to turn out. But we should be brave and follow the evidence where it leads. I, I annoy people on Twitter by saying that I think Bertrand Russell would have believed in in cosmic purpose on the basis of fine tuning because he followed the evidence where it leads and that evidence wasn't there when he was kicking around and it is now i like to quote um the economist keynes a journalist once said to him you didn't used to think that and, and keynes said well when the facts change i change my mind what do you do sir but that's really hard for human beings to do so i, I think future historians will look back and think why was everyone just ignoring fine-tuning for so long? I haven't find people just don't know about it, to be honest. Most people I talk to who, you know, friends who don't really, you know, follow philosophy that much, they just no, no idea about this. It's not something you hear about on kind of Brian Cox science shows, but it's a fascinating fact about physics in its own right. So it's kind of bizarre that it's not sort of known about, taught about. So I think the evidence does suggest fine-tuning and I think we just need to face up to that. Right. So you've already raised cosmic fine-tuning, which is an important part of this view that you're developing. So just to summarize, fine-tuning is this surprising discovery of the last century that the laws and, and constants that shape the entire universe 
appear to be mysteriously fine-tuned for life, such that if any one of multiple extremely precise variables had been even very slightly different, the universe would not have been able to produce life or really complexity of any kind. So as you talk about in the book, there's generally considered to be two avenues for explaining fine-tuning, that it's either on the one hand evidence for the existence of God, or on the scientific side that we live in a multiverse, that there are trillions of other universes and of course we occupy one of the very few in which life could evolve. So Philip, in this book you're exploring a third path which we're going to continue to explore, but maybe it'd be a good idea if you could just say a bit more about how the universe appears to be finely tuned for life and why you're not convinced by either the God or the multiverse explanation. So, yeah, we talked earlier about the example revolving around dark energy. I mean, that's one that's particularly baffling to physicists, actually, because it's a very strange number, what we call the cosmological constant, which measures the strength of dark energy, because it's a very, very small number, but it's non-zero. Something like 0.000, I think 38 zeros, and then a couple of numbers. So it's tiny, and you don't tend to get numbers like that in physics. I don't understand why, but physicists say tell me that given other things we know in physics, you'd expect the number to be much bigger. You'd expect it to be a pretty huge number. So it's very weird that the cosmological constant is so small and yet non-zero. In fact, before we managed to measure it, people thought it would be zero because they thought that's so odd that it would be so close to zero, but not zero. They expected it to be zero. And it was, a, it was a huge surprise that it was so close to zero and yet not zero. But it's fortunate that it is, right? Because if it had been uh, a more normal sized number, then as I say, everything would have shot apart too quickly. If it had been less than zero, well, then it wouldn't have been a repulsive force anymore. It would have been an attractive force. It would have added to gravity. So that's a weird one, but there are you know there are many such examples. The strong nuclear force that holds the um, components together in the nucleus of the atom can be represented with a number 0.007. If it was 0.008, or if it was 0.006, in either case, life would be impossible. Now I can't remember why. I think you get no water in one case, or you just have hydrogen in the other. I found it very common. People think. Oh, you're just talking about the kind of carbon-based life that we're made of. So there could have been a very different kind of life. Now, some examples of fine-tuning are to do with carbon, but carbon isn't just what we happen to be made of. Carbon is an incredibly flexible element, right? You can make so many different compounds with carbon, whereas most other elements you can make much, much fewer kinds of compounds. So if it weren't for carbon, there would be much less chemical flexibility in the universe. But actually, a, a lot of the kinds of fine tuning, such as the two I've just the two examples I've just given, are not are not to do with making carbon. It's to do with any kind of structural complexity whatsoever. So I, you know, I really do think this needs explaining. So why not the multiverse? This was the, the option I went for for a long time. But I've just been slowly persuaded by philosophers of probability that there is fallacious reasoning in this inference from fine-tuning to a multiverse. So the charge is that this inference commits what's called the inverse gambler's fallacy. 
I mean, there's a technical discussion, but it's you can introduce it just with a kind of analogy. So suppose, Adrian, you and I go to a casino. We walk in and there's just one roulette table in the first room. And there's one person just winning, having an extraordinary run of success with the roulette wheel. They're just winning again and again and again and again. And I turn to you and say, wow, there must be lots of people playing in the casino tonight. And you turn to me and say, what, what, are, what are you talking about? You know, all we've seen is this one guy. What, what's that got to do with what's going elsewhere in the casino? And I say, well, if there are lots of people playing in the casino, let's say there are trillions of people playing roulette in the casino elsewhere in other rooms we can't see. Well, then it's statistically not so surprising that someone in the casino is going to have a, an incredible run of luck. And, and that's what we've just observed, someone having an incredible run of luck. Now, everyone accepts that's a fallacy. That's the inverse gambler's fallacy, because our observational evidence is just confined to this one person. That's what we've observed. No matter how many people there are or aren't in other rooms of the casino, it has no bearing on how likely it is that this person in front of us, let's call him Bob, is going to have an incredible run of luck. So that that's fallacious reasoning. But look, it looks like the reasoning of the multiverse theorist is exactly analogous, right? They start off with the idea that, um, oh, my God, look how improbable the numbers in our physics are right for life. Oh, there must be loads of other universes with really rubbish numbers. It's exactly the same reasoning, right? All, all we've observed is this one universe with its fine-tuned physics, no matter how many universes there are or are not out there, it doesn't make it any more probable that our universe would have the right numbers for life. The common response here is to say, well, you're you're ignoring what's called the anthropic principle or sometimes called the selection effect, namely that we could only have observed a fine-tuned universe, right? If the numbers weren't right for life, we couldn't have experienced that. We wouldn't have been around to do any physics. Whereas in contrast, you might think in the casino example, we could have walked in and saw someone not playing very well. But if you go into the theoretical details, I don't think this makes a difference. It's of course true. It's of course trivially true that we couldn't have existed in a universe incompatible with life, obviously. But I don't think it makes a difference once you get into the theoretical underpinnings of, of why this is a fallacy. But to not get into, into too much technicalities, you could just add a selection effect or an anthropic principle to the thought experiment. So suppose there's a sniper hiding in the back of the casino and they have their gun aimed at us as we walk in the room. And unless we see someone having an incredible run of luck, they're going to blow out our brains before we have time actually to observe anything. Unless there's somebody there having an incredible run of luck, they're going to blow out our brains before we observe anything. Well, then. It's entirely analogous to the fine-tuning case, right? Because just as we could not have observed a universe that wasn't fine-tuned for life, so now in my modified version of the thought experiment, we couldn't have observed somebody playing badly. We couldn't have observed anything other than someone having an incredible run of luck. That doesn't change anything. The presence of that sniper clearly doesn't make a difference to, you know, whether I can suddenly infer lots of other people playing roulette elsewhere in the casino. Likewise, I just think it's fallacious to try and infer many universes to explain the one universe we have observed. Okay, so if I understand this correctly, the inverse gambler's fallacy essentially shows that it's a flawed intuition to observe a very low probability event and then assume from that observation that there's a very high number of, of similar events that turned out differently. I guess to me, it, it just doesn't quite on its own remove the plausibility of a multiverse. 
I know historically that fine-tuning was the reason that the multiverse idea was initially proposed, but I don't think it's necessarily the only reason to consider that a multiverse might exist. So, for example, the history of, of cosmology seems to be one of repeatedly discovering that there are many multiples of things that we first thought that there was only one of, including our star, the Sun, right? And then galaxies, you know, it was only a century ago that we thought our galaxy was the only one, and now we know that there are billions of galaxies. So, yeah, I mean, not only are there many multiples of phenomena that we first thought that there was only one of, but our understanding of the scale of existence has also continued to expand and, and expand. So, yeah, why shouldn't this trend continue? Why not multiple universes and multiple types of universe as well? I should say as well, I'm not personally convinced by the multiverse either, but I guess my concerns on it are more related to the coherence of the idea of a multiverse. So, for example, how necessarily complicated a universe-generating mechanism would apparently need to be, and how such a complex mechanism uh, could plausibly emerge into existence naturally, without itself you know, demanding explanation. And the multiverse idea doesn't really give any explanation of the conditions which necessitated this you know, seemingly miraculous universe-generating machine. So yeah, I just wanted to say I'm also a long way from being convinced about the existence of the multiverse, and I do think that the value-driven view that you're exploring is a completely valid and, and plausible alternative. Yeah, I think it's it's to deal with fine-tuning, we don't just need a multiverse. We need a multiverse of a very specific kind. So, I mean, there is arguably tentative evidence in cosmology for some kind of multiverse. This is related to inflationary cosmology, this idea that there's good reason to think our universe began the very rapid period of expansion and then slowed down. And for various complicated reasons, physicists think once you kind of bring quantum fluctuations into the equation, then you're led to what's called eternal inflation, where the idea is that you've got this sort of mega universe that's always inflating, that is to say, always exponentially expanding, and then regions of it slow down and become universes in their own right, sometimes called bubble universes. The idea is that we're one of those bubble universes. But of course, to deal with the fine tuning, what you need is not just eternal inflation, but well, what I call um, uh, heterogeneous eternal inflation, where each of the bubble universes has different numbers in its physics, different values of the constants, different rolls of the dice, and then for by chance you get one that's fine-tuned. But you could have a version of eternal inflation where all of the bubble universes have the same local physics, they're all fine-tuned. So what I try to argue in the book actually is the only way to avoid the inverse gambler's fallacy, if you're going to go for eternal inflation, the only way to avoid the inverse gambler's fallacy, is to go for that latter interpretation of it, that all the universes are fine-tuned. And so then you end up with a kind of multiverse, but it's not one that's going to deal with the fine-tuning problem. You just get more fine-tuning, which you might think fits with, you know, as, as we've learned more about other solar systems, they don't have different physics, they have uh, the similar principles that operate where we are. 
So um, another thing that's always annoyed me about the discussion of the inverse gambler's fallacy objection to the multiverse, you know, this goes back decades in the philosophical journals. As far as I've seen, nobody's ever connected it to the science, to the most scientifically supported versions of the multiverse. So that's what I try to do in the book is connect the inflationary multiverse to the inverse gambler's fallacy issue. And I argue that when you do that, you actually end up with a multiverse where all the universes are fine tuned. And so the problem just gets worse, really. One of the important ideas in your book is that value has ontological reality, that value is real, and that this value factors into the nature of causality itself in a deep way. And then I think another important idea that you introduce is that consciousness is not merely a, a passive phenomenon, but that it's rationally compelled towards or away from, from positive or negative states. Could you say a bit more about your thinking on this? Good. So one thing I try to do in the book is to drill down to what is the minimal hypothesis that fine tuning is supporting. A lot of people use it as an argument for God. Say, you know, we need to explain why these numbers are just right for life. And we can do that by hypothesizing that God chose the right numbers for life. That is an explanation of fine tuning. You know, I think in a sense, fine tuning can be seen to support God. I don't personally think it's a good explanation because of evil and suffering and so on. But what is the minimal hypothesis that fine tuning supports? Well, I think, you know, what is striking about the fine tuning and why we're interested in it is that there are many different values these constants might have had generating different universes. And we can model, simulate what those universes would have been like. The vast majority of such universes have little or no value. For example, a lot of the universes that you get generating, you know, different values, these constants just have hydrogen in the simplest element. There's very little value in a universe with just hydrogen. Contrast with the universe we live in, where you can get complex structures, you can get life evolving, people contemplating their own existence, falling in love, writing poetry. There's the potential for all that wonderful value. Whereas if you just chose values for these constants arbitrarily, you'd probably just get a universe of just hydrogen or a universe that just collapses back on itself after a split second, little or no value. So I think what is striking about the fine tuning is that the numbers that have come up against incredible odds allow for a universe of value. So I would say that the fine tuning supports what I call in the book the value selection hypothesis, which is the hypothesis that certain of the fixed numbers in physics are as they are because they allow for a universe containing things of significant value. So in some sense, the facts of value are impacting the physical world at a fundamental level and shaping it, molding it. Now, we have to say more to make sense of that. How do we make sense of that? And I go through a wide variety of different possibilities. So I don't take the value selection hypothesis as brute. It's what fine tuning supports. But then we have to go further, do more work to try and make sense of how that is possible. How is it possible for value to impact on the physical world? That's where I go with the fine tuning and why that gets us to value 
impacting the physical world. But we have these other challenges to do with um, psychophysical harmony. And to address that, I postulate that the stuff of our universe is not just conscious, but is in some sense rational or proto-rational. That it's not only consciousness that goes down to the fundamental building blocks of re reality, but rationality itself. So again, this starts to sound crazy at first, but it's maybe made a little bit more plausible when I emphasize that I'm not talking about the kind of rationality a human being has. Just as panpsychists don't think particles have the kind of hugely complex consciousness a human being has, rather particles have very some very rudimentary form of subjective experience. Similarly, for the view in my book I call panagentialism, it's not that particles or fields have the kind of complex rational engagement with reality that a human being has. Human beings can rationally deliberate and weigh various options and assess various goals and do mathematics and logic and so on. On the view I'm exploring, particles cannot rationally deliberate. They don't have conceptual understanding of the world around them. All that they have available to them is the most basic rational impulse, which is do what you feel like doing. I think particles have conscious inclinations. What do I mean by inclination? I mean, very, very simple form of what you have when you feel hungry or you feel tired when you yearn for something. So I think particles have very, very rudimentary desires, as it were. And I think particles rationally respond to those desires. I don't think on the view I outlined, particles are never compelled to do anything. Particles freely, rationally respond to their desires or their conscious inclinations. You know, if you're a mature human being and you desire something, you can think to yourself, is this a good idea? Maybe I don't want to eat the chocolate, even though I really want to. Maybe I don't want to lash out and hit this person. But the thought is, particles, because they can't rationally deliberate, all they can respond with is the crudest, most simple rational response, do what you feel like doing. So that's the idea that the rational responsiveness already exists at the fundamental level of reality. And then as we get natural selection, as we get creatures with not only consciousness, but rich conscious understanding of the world around them, then that basic rational drive flowers into something much more complex and beautiful and wonderful. Do you think that the idea that value is fundamental offers an explanation not just for the, the shape of the universe, but also for why anything exists at all? Why there is something rather than nothing? And just to add some context, of course, several philosophers throughout history have argued that if we do want an explanation for why anything exists, that in order to avoid a never-ending chain of physical causes, perhaps ultimately we do need to go beyond physical causes and consider that something more like value is the generative ground at which explanation can finally end. So, yeah, is that a view that you're drawn to at all, Philip? It's a fascinating hypothesis. This is the axiarchism of John Leslie, who's a wonderful, fascinating thinker and a, a big influence on me. Yeah, I don't ultimately buy it because 
I think perhaps it might possibly leads to another version of the problem of evil. If the universe exists because it's good that it exists, so value, as it were, is the is the ultimate originator of everything that exists, then I think you'd expect it to be a better universe. To my mind, the universe as we find it is sort of a mixture of accident and design. There seem things like the fine tuning, like psychophysical harmony that are suggest purpose and in some sense design, not necessarily in the sense of there being a designer, but some purposive element, whereas some things seem arbitrary and gratuitous and pointless. So I think we need we need a mix of the two. How would I answer why is this something rather than nothing? I think ultimately, this is something I go into a little bit in the book when I'm dealing with arguments for the existence of God and trying to refute them. Ultimately, I think I'm a sort of mysterian about this question, which is a term used to describe the, the view the philosopher Colin McGinn has about consciousness. So he thinks, you know, there is a perfectly ordinary explanation of consciousness, but it's it's just beyond the human capacity to understand it. I guess I think there must be an explanation of why there is something rather than nothing. And the only way there could be is if there is something that ex- explains its own existence has to exist. And, you know, if you understood its nature, you just say, oh, yeah, it just has to exist. Now, I think such a being, such an entity is just totally beyond what human beings can comprehend. We have no conception of of something that by nature just has to exist. I don't think we've got any conception of such a thing, but that might just be the limits of our understanding. So I think probably there is something that explains its own existence and is the ultimate origin of everything, but we just can't make sense of such a thing. Where where I would, this is starting to sound a little bit theistic, a little bit like certain arguments for the existence of God. Where I get off the bus with these arguments is that there's any reason to think that this ultimate source of existence has any of the um, qualities or characteristics of the traditional God. In fact, I think we can argue in a way that it can't have because any kind of properties or characteristics we can think of, they might not have existed. So the ultimate source of existence must be, I think, a complete unknown, something we can postulate to explain why there's something rather than nothing, but we can form no positive understanding of it. You mentioned the problem of evil and the fact that there is a lot of apparent disvalue in the world in addition to value. And Yeah, I mean, to me, I think this is the biggest doubt that I have about this whole idea of existence being driven by value. It's basically all of the apparent disvalue in the world. Yeah, so this is, I guess, similar to the problem of evil in theological arguments. If the universe is, Philip, as you suggest, compelled towards conscious value, why is there so much suffering and and apparent intrinsic disvalue? It makes sense to me that this cosmic imperative is not an omni-god and uh, so perhaps it's not all powerful in its ability to create value and so that this is why we live in a universe that contains a certain amount of disvalue. But Philip, how would it affect your view if it was to turn out that in total, for example through Darwinian evolution and all of the suffering and, and predation that that entails, that the universe actually contains significantly more disvalue than value. Personally, I do find it much harder to believe that the universe is shaped by value when 
quite plausibly, it's created far more of the precise opposite. That is an excellent. I think that's. I think that's the best objection I've had on this book thus far. Um, yeah, I think. You know, I think it would be a refutation of of my view if there were more disvalue than value. Um, I was kind of hoping that you could disabuse me of that view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I said it would it would be a refutation of my position if there were more disvalue than value. Um, I suppose my my way of avoiding the problem of evil, my way of explaining why there is badness and gratuitous suffering as well as a lot of goodness is that the force that's pushing towards the good, whether that's the cosmic universe or or just some sort of fundamental impersonal tendency to the good, I consider a, a couple of different hypotheses, but that that force is, is not all powerful. Maybe it's operating amidst other forces, like the more familiar laws of physics, or maybe it's operating under certain constraints. But we need something like this to explain why this fundamental force pushing towards the good didn't bring about a better universe. If, in fact, there were more harm than good in this universe, if it were better than it, as the antinatalist philosopher David Benatar that I discuss in the book, if it would be better if the universe had not existed at all, then yeah, then this force to the good is is doing the wrong thing in creating life and and so on. You're right that there is great suffering in history, but I, I'm not a kind of simple consequentialist. I don't think it's a matter of just adding up the good things and taking away the bad things. I think there are some good things that come out of human beings and, and, and many animals in terms of understanding and love and achievement and knowledge and creativity that are sort of a radical step change from pleasure. It's radically good to have such things in the universe. And maybe that counteracts all of the terrible suffering we find. It's still better that we have a universe. If it's a choice between a universe with conscious understanding, entities that can contemplate their own existence, if it's a choice between having that and awful, awful suffering, countless, countless suffering, or just having hydrogen that kind of feels good, I think arguably the former universe is better. Even with all the terrible, terrible suffering beyond measure, if it has such wonderful goods like self-consciousness, understanding of the universe, I think in a sense that might outweigh it. Of course, the other thing to say, and I think I might have heard this on a on a previous discussion on your podcast, actually, Adrian, we've also got to think about the future, right? It could be you're looking at the past, at the terrible suffering in the past, but of course there's a perhaps infinite future and it could be eventually in the a few thousand years time we'll we'll sort out these problems. Maybe we'll even find a way of, as the, the post-humanists yearn for, getting rid of the suffering in the natural world and maybe there'll be an infinite future of pleasure and joy. So um, so those two reasons give me hope that maybe it, it is worth it in the end. Yeah, that, I mean, that is sort of how I contextualise my concern about Darwinian suffering and disvalue, is that 
I imagine that through the emergence of intelligence and then conscious, intelligently directed evolution, uh, that maybe the vast future becomes uh, a much brighter picture for conscious beings. Um, I guess another related question here is why is there suffering at all? I mean, why wouldn't a value-responsive universe not simply compel survival behavior with what the philosopher David Pierce calls information-sensitive gradients of bliss? Why does suffering even enter into this picture at all? Is this just a, a tragic mistake on the part of this imperfect value selection imperative? I mean, I think there's a big mystery here that we, we haven't really touched on that I talk about in the book is that why did consciousness evolve? Because you might think that's kind of obvious that consciousness is going to be good for our survival. But, you know, natural selection only cares about behavior, right? Because it's only behavior that matters for survival. And I think with the rapid recent progress in AI and robotics, it's become quite clear that you can have incredibly complicated information processing and behavior without any kind of inner life, any kind of conscious understanding at all. So there's a big deep question here that I think is so underexplored is why didn't natural selection just make survival mechanisms, you know, complicated mechanisms that can mechanically track features of their environment, instigate behavior that's very conducive to survival. It seems like for any behavior that's good for survival, you could just have a mechanism, a blind mechanism that produces it. So there's this problem, how to ensure that intelligent, conscious organisms with understanding of the world arise. My proposal is that the way that's been brought about is by creating a universe with two things, a universe that's fine-tuned so that you can get structural complexity, and a universe that's made up of rational matter matter that feels pleasures and pains and responds rationally to the character of its experience. I think once you've got those two things in place, all you need is natural selection, right? Because now natural selection's got a motivation to make creatures with conscious understanding, because if they get conscious understanding of the world around them, then they're going to respond rationally to it and they're going to survive very well. My hypothesis is it's much easier for natural selection to create organisms that survive well by giving them conscious understanding, which they're then going to respond rationally to, rather than trying to make very complicated mechanisms that kind of behave in survival conducive ways. But note that you need both of these things, right? Because if you had if you just had fine tuning without rational conscious matter, then you might get complicated survival mechanisms, you might get zombies, but you wouldn't get things with conscious understanding. On the other hand, if you just had rational matter without the fine tuning, then you're not going to get the kind of structural complexity needed for evolution. So we need both of these things. They fit together like a lock into a key. The existence of rational matter, which I'm postulating, and the fine tuning of the laws of nature. So my hypothesis is that whatever it is, that's set up the universe for the sake of the emergence of conscious understanding, whether that's a conscious universe or some kind of brute teleology. This was the only way it was able to do it. The only way it was able to ensure the emergence of conscious organisms with understanding was by creating a universe with rational matter and fine tuning 
so that natural selection eventually kicks in and gets us where we are today. Philip, I've got a couple of very brief quotes from your book here, both saying quite a similar thing. So at one point you say that there's, quote, overwhelming evidence for the value selection hypothesis. And then somewhere else you say there's, quote, clear and overwhelming evidence of cosmic purpose. I guess I'm just curious how you get this very high level of credence. I mean, you said previously that you're only around 60% convinced of panpsychism. And I just wonder how you get such a high confidence in this view. Well, I don't want to overplay it too much. One thing I'm very open to, as we all should be, is that the evidence might change. It could be that we find a way of marrying general relativity to quantum mechanics and the fine tuning goes away. That's entirely possible. And then, you know, the case would collapse. But it's equally possible that we bring general relativity and quantum mechanics together and there's more fine tuning. You hear a lot of scientists say, I've heard, for example, Roger Penrose say this about fine tuning. Oh, well, I think it's going to it's going to go away. What you often find with fine tuning, people sort of ramp up the standards of evidence like, you know, we've got to wait for physics to be complete before we assess the evidential significance of fine tuning. You know, all we can ever do is work with the evidence we've got right now. And I would say the evidence we've got right now very strongly suggests cosmic purpose because, I mean, the probabilities at play here are so immense. And I mean, we can put the argument more rigorously in, in Bayesian terms, but I think a more accessible way of putting it is just to have this dilemma, you know, either it's just a fluke that the numbers are right for life or the, the numbers are as they are because they are the right numbers for life, which is essentially the same as saying this kind of goal directedness here. And so faced with that choice, which is presented to us by the evidence as it is, I think there's a there's an overwhelming case of cosmic purpose. But the only reason I'm not 99.999% certain is because I have a healthy credence for the possibility that the evidence will change. So, so that's what will drag it down. How do you think recognising the existence of cosmic purpose otherwise affects our life and our worldview? Do you see this view as, uh, as a bonus offering a sort of philosophical spirituality? Good question. So most of the book is just a cold-blooded philosophical scientific case for cosmic purpose. And actually, you know, my, my colleague David Faraci thinks, yeah, you might have a case there, but, you know, I don't care about cosmic purpose. You know, I'm just going to get on with my own life, make my own meaning, you know. So you, you could very well have that reaction. But I guess in the first and last chapter, I do think more about how this impacts human existence and try to relate cosmic purpose to spiritual practice and spiritual communities and political struggle as well. So my view here is I always go for the middle ways. <laughs> it's a middle way between two more extreme positions. On the one hand, you have, for example, the Christian philosopher William Lane Craig and the atheist philosopher we've already mentioned, David Benatar. Craig thinks if there's no purpose to the universe, it's all totally pointless. He even says, you know, we might as well just kill each other. There's just utterly meaningless nothingness to life. At the other extreme, you have cosmic purpose is just would just be irrelevant. We make our own meaning. That's that's all there is to it. So I have a middle way. I think life can be perfectly meaningful without a purpose to the universe. 
for most of my life, I didn't believe in a purpose of the universe and I took my life to be meaningful. I think I was correct to do so. So as I say, I'm an objectivist about these things. I don't think we can just decide for ourselves what's meaningful. I think if you decide you're going to spend your life counting blades of grass, that doesn't make it meaningful. But I think there are objectively meaningful things like pursuing knowledge, creativity, helping others, <laughs> being kind to your family. I get a lot of meaning out of my, my family and my children. And that would be there the, even if there's no cosmic purpose. But I do think there's perhaps a greater meaning to life if there is cosmic purpose. If we can, even in some small way, contribute to the good purposes of the whole of reality, I think that's huge. <laughs> you know, we want our lives to make a difference, right? You want to make a difference. You want to have an impact if you can make a contribution to the purposes of the whole of existence, you know, that's about as big a, big a difference as you can imagine making. You know, I don't want to sort of come down, oh, you know, this is the only way of living a meaningful life. But I have personally, as I've come on this journey of coming to believe in cosmic purpose, tentatively to an extent, I have found it a, a deeply meaningful form of existence to live in hope that there is a greater purpose here and to see the small good one does as contributing in some small way to the greater purpose. And you know, to some extent, it's following William James in hoping beyond the evidence. I think it can be rational to an extent to hope beyond what we have evidence for. You know, I think there's evidence of the cosmic purpose, but I don't think we've got evidence that like we can make a difference to it or or that it's going to go much further than where it's gone already. So to some extent, it's hoping beyond the purpose. But you only live once. And I think it's legitimate to to have hope that goes a little bit beyond, not too much beyond, but a little bit beyond what you can evidentially support. And I suppose I just want to suggest, suggest it to people to think about that this might be a meaningful way of living life that appeals to some people, if not everyone. And, I, you know, I've found it myself to be quite meaningful. I find it keeps my ego in check to sort of stop me thinking just about the narrow interests of myself and my family and, you know, to, to connect everything to some bigger picture. Yeah, I could quite easily imagine how this picture of a conscious, value-responsive universe allows for an almost spiritual view in which there is a larger purpose that binds us and that we all participate in this larger self-revelatory unfolding or evolution. I could see that potentially dissolving a lot of our perceived separation and sense of competition with others. I know it's not a motivation for the view, but yeah, if it is true, I could see that being a nice bonus. Yeah, I hope so. I think I see it that way. If tomorrow the evidence of fine-tuning went away and, well, I think there'd still be other bits of evidence, but suppose I decided there was no cosmic purpose, I wouldn't commit suicide, I wouldn't give up, I still think life can be meaningful, but yeah, I think in a way we should be celebrating as a society that current science points towards cosmic purpose. Wow, that's, that's how lucky we are. Philip, we're coming to the end of our time together today. Thank you very much for coming back on and talking about your work. I find it really interesting and I know a lot of my audience do as well. Uh, before we do say goodbye, please let people know how they can stay up to date with you and what you're working on and also get their hands on this fascinating new book of yours. Thanks. I've really enjoyed the conversation, Adrian. It's been great to speak to you again and um, 
yeah some good challenging questions that have made me think about this particular i'm particularly going to spend a bit longer thinking about the possibility that there's more disvalue than value that's uh that's going to keep me awake tonight probably but um this book is out uh 9th of november i don't know whether that will have happened already when this comes out why the purpose of the universe from oxford university press it's put out as a trade book rather than an academic book so it's hopefully quite reasonably priced yeah more generally my website philipgoffphilosophy.com my wonderful wife recently redesigned i think it looks quite nice lots of videos and articles both academic and more accessible my podcast mind chat i do with keith frankish has had a bit of a break but we're going to go back to that and interviewing scientists and philosophers of consciousness from our very different perspectives i do have a sub stack that i i uh i keep meaning to do more hopefully i will do more but uh so hard to find time twitter i have lots of arguments on twitter i suppose we're supposed to be finding some other social media aren't we but i'm, I'm not sure i'll ever get around to finding something other than twitter so philip underscore goff philip with one l goff g-o-f-f yeah come and have an argument on twitter okay well it's been a real pleasure philip good luck with the new book and i look forward to next time thanks a lot adrian take care Hello, Adrian again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Waking Cosmos. If you did, please consider subscribing to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos, where you can get early access to every podcast and video I create. And to those of you who are already Patreon subscribers, my sincere thanks for your support. If you're listening on podcast services like Apple or Spotify, please consider subscribing and giving the podcast a nice rating. And finally, if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to hit like, subscribe for more episodes, and share your thoughts in the comments, and I'll do my best to respond there. Alright, that is about it from me and this episode of Waking Cosmos. I'm Adrian Nelson, until next time.